everybody, my name is Remy. Welcome to the For the Love podcast with your host, Jen Hatmaker, my mom. She writes books and speaks to crowds, but she mostly loves talking to amazing people on this podcast every week. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. Hey guys, Jen Hatmaker is here, me, your host of the For the Love podcast. Welcome to the show. Glad you're here today. Really glad you're here today, actually. We are in the middle of a series called For the Love of Finding the Truth, which is such a weird time to be alive right now. And we have so much information coming at us more than any other time in human history. And as we've seen, so much of it is fake or false or inflated. Um, We're steering the ship into this mega campaign season again, which is just so loud and so noisy. And um, we just have a lot to sift through in order to be in the know, in order to have a real solid grasp on what is true. And so we really wanted to put this series together um, to have conversations with smart and interesting people in this field, helping us discern and listen and um, really have a better understanding of what's going on in our culture and in our world. And so today's guest is going to help us think through some pretty big topics like, let's see, for example... What do I do when my faith and my politics are in conflict? Or what do I do when it seems like the faith that I once shared with a group of people, I no longer share when it comes to politics? Um, What would Jesus do about towing the party line? Just little things like that. Uh, I think this conversation dovetails beautifully with the one we had with Beth and Sarah of Pantsuit Politics. So if you haven't listened to that episode, go back and listen after this one, because that is a really smart and important conversation that'll grease the wheels in your brain as you get to thinking about how do I put my beliefs into action. So anyhow, I'm thrilled about our guest today because it's literally her job to ask big questions and think about the answers she gets and present the truest version of truth that she possibly can. So my guest today is Elizabeth Dias, and she covers faith and politics for a tiny little publication you may have heard of called the New York Times. Before that, she covered a similar beat for Time Magazine, where she reported on the 2012 and 2016 presidential campaigns. Um, Elizabeth has interviewed everyone from Pope Francis to the Dalai Lama. Okay, so she's no joke. She has covered huge important topics like the way the Latino community is transforming churches in America and also like culture's response to Trayvon Martin's death. Huge things. Uh, where she dissects the way politics affects faith and vice versa. She's such a fascinating person. Her undergrad degrees in theology from Wheaton College, and then she has a master's in divinity from Princeton Theological Seminary. So it's a smart girl. Elizabeth is one of my really favorite thinkers around. I've been a reader of hers for some time, and she and I even collaborated um, on a piece last year. And she's creative, but I think what I really like about her, and you're going to hear this exact word that she says several times, she's just insatiably curious 
um, and in a way that a journalist should be, not tied to the outcome of the story, just curious what it is, curious what's underneath it, what is true here, what is, you know, what are the deep currents underneath what it is we see on the outside. And so when I see her name on a byline, I click it immediately because she grapples with huge these huge topics with great care and nuance, which do you remember what that is? Remember when we used to celebrate and embrace nuance? Um, she does this really, really well still. And I think you're going to be really interested in our conversation today and challenged by it. And I think if you're anything like me, pieces of what you hear for the next bit are going to encourage you and pieces might not. Um, there was a couple of moments in the plot points where I asked her a question and she said, I don't think you're going to like the answer. And I was like, I don't like the answer. So, um, but that's truth, right? Truth isn't always just our truth or what we wish was the truth. It's what's actually true. Um, and so I am excited to bring this conversation to you. I think it's a smart one. I think it's a good one. And in it, Elizabeth delivers to us what she thinks are best practices that you and I can adopt any normal person can adopt in order to become more media literate, less pulled around by the nose, um, more uh, in possession of what's right and good and true in our world right now. So this is a good one, you guys. Glad you're here. You are going to be glad too. So I'm pleased to share my conversation with the brilliant, very insightful, amazingly curious Elizabeth Dias. I am so delighted. Delighted to welcome you to the show today, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for making time for this amid your very, very busy, hectic schedule. Glad to have you. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks, Jen. Um, and it's great to have you as a part of this truth series. You, When we were brainstorming, like, who do we want to come on and to lead us and guide us and make us think and push us into smart spaces? Um, you were one of the names at the very top of our list. So I've, I've filled in our listeners with a little bit about your background and your personal pursuit of truth in your life. Um, but I think something that just maybe originally kind of speaks to who you are and is, is what you've chosen as your Twitter cover, which says it's a button that says the truth is worth it. And I love it. It's just the perfect shining example of what we're trying to get under during this series. Can you talk a little bit about that and what that means to you and that choice to kind of say, this is who I am world. Yes. So it's true. I have this this white button with black letters, um, and it says the truth is worth it. And it's actually pinned right above my laptop at my desk on my board. So it's the thing that I see when I'm writing and calling people and asking questions. And uh, it's a saying we have at the New York Times, the truth is worth it. It's one of the, the slogans that we have. And for me, the truth is worth it. It's something I have to think about almost every day in my reporting. Because reporting is really hard and writing is really hard and asking questions is hard and figuring out the right people to talk to and how to fact check um, and really drill down to the core of a question and of a story. It's really difficult. And I think uh, sometimes we joke, my colleagues and I will joke, you know, there's this rhythm to doing, doing any story and it often can feel like you know, it just gets messier and messier yeah. before it all becomes clear. And um, so you, I find I really have to push through. And so I like to remind myself the truth is worth it. And mm. I have found that to be true in every single story that I have written. It's something you see, you can, you can see it along the way, 
Um, but it's at the end and after, and sometimes not even immediately. Sometimes it's months after you, right. you have a, a bigger uh, understanding of what that whole um, reporting project really meant and was all about. It's such a weird time, and we're going to get into that. I want to go backwards a little bit with you. Obviously, as mentioned, you report on faith and politics for the Times currently, but you started at Time Magazine, interestingly, having zero reporting experience. And so <laughs> that's curious. So how did you go from being a master's student at Princeton Theological Seminary to, um, I'm writing for Time Magazine, Mom, everybody relax. Like, did you <laughs> choose the religion and politics beat? Did it choose you? Because that's, that's a pretty big leap. Oh, well, it is. I actually, I'd like to say I started my career as like an eight or nine year old recording uh, my own radio show, WEJD News for my initials, <laughs> uh, into, into this, you know, ancient giant karaoke machine um, and then so forcing funny. my forcing my entire family to listen to my cassettes. Uh, oh, on road my trips. gosh. I'm so happy you told us that. That's so <laughs> amazing. Yeah, I found one of them recently and I need to get it. Um, you know, I need to find a way to listen to it because I don't have a cassette recorder anymore. Right. Uh, yeah. Oh my goodness. So, if you figure it out, you have to send us over a clip. So, um, but yes, I mean, prior to that, really, I didn't have, I didn't have reporting experience. I loved to write. I, uh, I had studied religion in my undergraduate and I have always been really fascinated by why people make the choices that they make and what that means for their personal lives, their relationships, their life in community with other people and the world. And so I was, I had just started actually my master's at Princeton Theological Seminary. And I was trying to figure out, you know, what do you do with that kind of degree? And, sure. you know, all, all the questions of a sort of a 21 year old trying to figure out uh, her future and it was during the recession. It was it was yeah. 2008. It was during um, President Barack Obama's first run for the White House. So there was a lot going on at the intersection of religion and politics, and that's what was really driving me. And so I met an editor for Time Magazine and got an internship there. Yeah. And then that was sort of it. That was it yeah. for me right away. That this was what I wanted to. Uh, really devote my work uh, toward. Mm. And then I just dug deeper. And so, I mean, as far as religion and politics, um, in a way, I guess, well, I chose it and it chose me. Yeah. Um, is that I, that those were the kinds of questions that I'd been thinking about mm. uh, during my academic studies. And it was very of the moment then. Um, I think the conversation about evangelicals and politics was right. so different in 2008, 2009. Totally. Of how many um, evangelicals supported President Obama, uh, which was just so different from the George W. Bush years. Hmm. And so there was a lot of really dynamic movement happening and hmm. I really just wanted to dig in. Hmm. Uh, and Kudos to you to get into your right out of the gate, Time Magazine. I mean, that's not too shabby. That's, <laughs> I would say, starting near the top. Um, that's exciting. And, you know, I don't think there's a single listener here who would not concede that 
writing about faith and religion and politics, this is uh, this is hard. And and it's not a, obviously it's not a monolith. There's so many slivers in the pie right. chart. What well, I'm curious because um, obviously you just said you studied that uh, religion in undergrad too. What's your personal spiritual or faith background? Like what what came into this for you? What'd you bring into it with your personal experience? Uh, well, every reporter brings to whatever they're writing and, mm. and and asking questions about. I mean, everyone brings their own personal experiences. And so the, I mean, and broadly, you know, I grew up in a Protestant family. Mm-hmm. Um, and the thing that I love about this bead and what I get to write about is uh, I learned so much from different people and oh, communities and the kinds yeah. of questions that they're asking. Mm. And so that's what really drives me right now is is what people are seeking and why. And it's a great question. I think I learn a lot from that. And it's a real privilege to be invited into someone's life and to mm. hear their life story. I mean and the real human side sure. of that seeking um, is fascinating. It's fascinating. And so I think for reporters um, the, the, the challenge is you have to report to figure yeah. out what the truth is of what's going on. And any, any topic is bigger than whatever your own personal context is of course. into it. And so what can you learn from that? Hey everybody, quick little break to tell you about a cool, really innovative service that you're going to want to check out, especially if you like a good soak in the tub. There is nothing better than tossing in some fancy, like gorgeous smelling bath salts and lighting some candles, locking the door, obviously, and just escaping for a while. I get all my reading done in the bathtub. Sometimes I just listen to music. Sometimes I just say, this is me time. Nobody speak to me. Just let me live. If you love that and you're thinking about giving your bathroom a refresh without starting over from scratch, you have to check out Bath Fitter. Well, they've been around for like 35 years and they can install a beautiful luxury tub in your house in as little as a day, a day. So they'll custom make a new bath to fit over your current one. So there's no demo, no mess, no stress. They have thousands of designs to choose from. So you're sure to find one that you love. Here's what you do. Go to bathfitter.com slash podcast to book your free consultation. So bathfitter dot com slash podcast. Oh my goodness. Treat yourself. Okay. Back to our show. So to your point, how do you find truth in your job? Because in the same way that, you know, any, any reporter or person in the news would bring some of their own personal experience into any environment. So do the people that you're interviewing. So do their stories are also very entwined in their perspective and definitely in their opinions. And so how do you as a reporter discern what people tell you, like, this is true 
or this isn't, or this is true, or this is less true. You know, like how do you funnel down (laughs) to the core of that? It feels very complicated. It is. And that's why journalism is an entire profession. I mean, the job of journalists is to figure that out um, and to, I mean, I, I often think about people living their lives and just doing daily things. And um, ideally, the point is that they shouldn't have to do the same type of, you know, months-long investigations and sorting through all these very difficult questions. And they should, that, that, that's why we do what we do, so that we can make that easier for people, right? We can not just say these are what the facts are, but this is, this is the context and this is what we've discovered that it means. Hmm. So for me, I mean, the whole game is reporting, um, asking questions, yeah. often asking questions people don't like, uh, um, really listening. I find I often when I'm interviewing people, I'm really quiet a lot of the time. My goal is just to get them to talk and to really hear what they have to say. I think it depends on the kind of reporting that you're doing. I mean, if you're mm-hmm. doing... Um, sort of a deep dive into, you know, a cultural piece about life in a certain location, um, mm-hmm. then that's going to be different than if you need to ask difficult questions of the the White House or the State right. Department or your elected officials. So there's different kinds of uh, reporting. Mm-hmm. And I think, too, you have to start with facts. You have to figure yeah. out what what actually happened, what actually didn't happen, you know, what was said, what was emailed, what was mm. um, what action was taken, and then once you nail down what that is, then you can start to figure out okay, what's the bigger truth of this situation? Mm. Because you can't argue with facts. Something happened. Something didn't happen. Right. And uh, it's harder than you think sometimes to actually figure out what those facts are. I believe and you. Then once, and then once you know them um, and you've, you've uh, done that investigating, then you can say, okay, this is what we know. Mm. And now how, do, how have people interacted with those facts? Mm-hmm. And what does that mean? So we, there's, a, there's a, a saying, you know, reporting is, um, is finding the best possible, the best obtainable version of the truth. Mm, and, that's good. Yeah. And I think about that um, because, you know, in, in a daily newspaper and in this constant news environment, I mean, there are different kinds of stories, right? There's, there's up, like live, live um, events that are happening and, and the immediate news of that exact moment. And then mm. putting that in, then there's, you know, putting that in the bigger context of um, the story, like how the, how that storyline has been playing out in past weeks, months, even years. Mm-hmm. And so uh, if you're not getting the facts out there and saying mm-hmm. this is the set of facts that we need to be looking at when we're talking about a topic. That's great. Uh, what's, what are the relevant facts here? Because every, you know, sources will come and they'll all have, their own um, ideas or their own sure. statements or sometimes even what they think are their own facts. Yeah, that's right. And my job is to test that and to compare that with other information that I have found and then to discern, okay, what does this all mean when I look at it together? Mm. Mm. So 
uh, help us break down a little bit just from a wider lens as it pertains to your specific beat. Um, what do you know, just based on your field work, your observations, having started at kind of the beginning of Obama's run to where we are now, um, what do you know about who Christians are today? Like, what do you see the differences with them now uh, as opposed to, well, perhaps where we were maybe 20 or 30 years ago, but even Heck, even a decade ago, right? Um, you know what? What do we now know about how they break down by age or sex or income? And 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 I would just like to hear your general um, sort of comprehensive idea about who Christians are today and how that is shifting or has shifted. So, in the United States, about twenty five percent of adults are um, evangelical Protestants. Okay. And then it's about another 20% are Catholic and 15% are uh, mainline Protestants. So that's like, okay. It's like Episcopal, uh, sure. Presbyterian uh, yeah. Church USA and less than 2% are uh, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Okay. And then the, I mean, the biggest, the growing trend in the United States right now is to be religiously unaffiliated. Right. Uh, exactly. Sometimes they call them the religious nuns, N O N E S, right? Which is different from being atheist or agnostic. And that that cohort is uh, about 20, 20, 23% of the country. And that's what's growing. That's what's growing quickly. Yep. And then Christians in the United States tend to be, I think there are more women than men. I think the latest split that I saw was somewhere around 55 to 45%. More women than men, uh, and increasingly, Christianity in the United States is less white. There's a growing immigrant population, yeah. and so that's just like the big scope of Christianity by the numbers in yeah. the United States. And what we've seen in the last ten years is that the power of the quote-unquote religious right. Um, has been going strong. <laughs> and I mean, there is so much mm -hmm. institutional and financial and political power built for, you know, 30 years, 40 years right. there that not only hasn't gone away, but has strengthened and grown and really reached um, new heights in President Trump's presidency. Mm. And so now... What I hear a lot talking to people is how much do I, this is people talking to me, they'll say, how much do I, as a Christian, uh, want my faith to be connected to my politics? Mm. And um, what does that mean? Mm. But that's only if they're asking the question. I think uh, that's a smaller subset of people asking that question than one might think um, there's a lot of doubling down that's been happening. Uh, just people really committing to um, their their views, mm -hmm. and I've heard less soul searching um, recently. I think I heard a, even a little bit more soul searching during the 2016 campaign and in the first. Mm -hmm year uh, of President Trump's presidency. Mm. Um, but when I'm talking to voters now, 
I, I don't hear a lot of people who have been to their minds mm. for uh, really, really changing um, what they think. For religious voters, especially conservative religious voters, it comes with an entire package about how you live your life and what you think about family and women and children. And um, it, it's, it's a whole worldview. And what I'm watching for as we head into 2020 is, are there any shifts there? Yeah. How do you see them? Um, because they happen very quietly. And uh, I think when I hear them, it's often in whispers, you know, people and women wondering um, what this will mean for them going forward. You know, this is all so fascinating to me. And I also have pointed my arrow kind of right at this interesting and surprising intersection where um, this, uh, there was just such a, a pivot from this one set of values, which I grew up in. I mean, these were just handed to me absolutely with impunity. These are the things that we care about. These are sort of the moral body of values that comprise our faith and thus comprise our politics. And so the pivot away, as you are describing, um, uh, has been for some of us. And I would, I will tell you, it feels discouraging to hear you say that that's not a question you hear that often, that it's, <laughs> a, it's a minority question. So for those of us who are reckoning with faith and politics every day right now, which feels sometimes inside my head, like just, it's like a cacophony of confusing mm-hmm. metrics. This is just a personal question. How, how do we begin that, that apparently small crew of us um, how do we begin to make peace with the tenets of our faith and the ballot box? Like, how how can we reconcile our beliefs um, when, strangely, at large, they seem at odds now with a given political agenda, maybe even one that we once identified with for a really long time? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that that division right there is where I know that a lot of my listeners and readers live. That's where I live, that very upsetting um, fork in the road. And so uh, how how do we move forward in a way that isn't just this small, (laughs) shrinking voice crying out in the wind, but in a way that also has some heft and some backing to it and some real intelligent argument and debate Um, when we say these are the things that we find faithful inside politics? One thing I want to say is it's possible, when I say these aren't questions, well, the the vast majority of people that I'm talking to and that I hear from, voters aren't asking those questions. I I think what I mean is publicly. Um, I think there, I I get the sense that there are people who have very questions about this and don't don't know where to go with that. And it's a, I think it it seems to be an inner struggle, at least that's what I've observed. Um, And the question is at what point would someone like me be brought into that, right? Um, As a reporter and especially I think people, um, white evangelical communities, especially, I think there is, um, 
there's a distrust of the of the media and of um, the New York Times. This is a bit of a side note, but I it's really important to me to tr- to be a part of changing that perception as much Good. as possible because the, the my colleagues and the the reporters that I work with are such professionals and I learned so much from them. And so that's what I mean. I don't know. Maybe these conversations are happening, you know, maybe they happen between women, you know, when someone comes over for coffee, that kind of thing. Yes. But it's, it's hard to step out of one's own community yes, and publicly dare to question. Um, so I'll be curious to watch if if that barrier gets mm. broken in a more public way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but to answer your other question, uh, I can really only speak to what I hear from voters. Sure. And in my my role in this entire conversation is to identify what it is that people are and aren't talking about and questioning, mm. and how they are how they are aren't. Um, thinking about how their faith and their politics work together, right? Or, uh, and to show what that looks like, what the effect of that is when they do or when they don't. And so when I look at the, the, the body of work that I've done in the past few years, um, as people have and haven't engaged that question, um, I think I see it coming in waves, uh, and sometimes there isn't a lot of reconciling going on. Mm. I think people can believe different things to be true, contradictory things to be true at the same mm. time. Mm. I mean, a lot of people have um, had no pro- a lot of white evangelicals, you know, had no had no problem um, voting for President Trump, mm. even though they also had no problem saying that they were really turned off by a lot of his uh, comments about women or about people who weren't white or about um, anything like that. Right. So the, I'm really trying to better understand the conversation that takes place in that, in that middle ground, right. When uh, it may not affect what, you know, bubble they fill in when they go vote. Um, But it, it does affect what's going on in a church, uh, you know, reception or something like that, or like, you know, the conversations around the, the living room when families get together. Uh, and so exploring that, that deeper culture behind political decisions yes. uh, is what I'm really trying to refer focus a lot of my reporting energy on mm. um, instead of just hitting the hammer again and again, like, look, there's yeah. cognitive dissonance. And what is that yeah. about? You know, um, I'm less interested in that. We know that mm. right now. What we don't know is much more about the cultural forces and mm. the spiritual beliefs um, uh, and economic beliefs or, or right. experiences that are driving uh, these decisions. And what's your sense of it at this point? Obviously, this is all in flux. This is happening to this country in real time. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, you just like the rest of us are kind of 
at the genesis of sorting through it all and picking through the threads and trying to understand it. So as you've dug and listened as a good reporter does and should, what's your, what, what are you finding? What is culturally and spiritually and economically and traditionally underneath this sort of breach in um, traditional faith values at the polls? I do think we're really at the beginning of this question. Yeah. This is a long game. This is a long reporting project. And I know we're three years sort of in. I mean, I I think this is going to be decades. I mean, Mm -hmm. I really don't think this is um, a quick shift. I mean, I think there are moments in American history when you see whole communities um, upend themselves and reorganize and there's a real yep, realignment politically happening and you know it's like it's like what they say about <clears throat> the whole history of Christianity you know every 500 years there's some kind of yeah. major shift yeah. in organization and yeah. and I actually think about that because <clears throat> the Protestant Reformation yeah was about 500 years That's ago right. we're at it right and so I I try to take a really big step back um uh but but the the areas that I'm really trying to report on um, to better understand political choices are in this, in specifically the, the what's going on with Christians in America. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to understand um, women and views about women and women's experiences in Christianity and what is changing there. Um, Sex. What are views about sex? How is that changing? Yeah. Are the conflicts there, and race, and uh, what are what are the racial um, divisions? What is the history of racism in Christianity? Um, whose voices are not being heard? Right. Um, I'm trying very hard. It's amazing when you report on religion how often um, the leaders are and white men. So I'm I'm really trying to get other voices into our pages and into our coverage Good. so that we can see this bigger picture. Um, and I think, well, just as an example, I've been doing a lot of reporting about sexual abuse, and you know I've covered that in the Catholic Church for a long time. Um, but what we've seen in the last year is stories of long-standing sexual abuse uh, by leaders in Southern Baptist churches, other evangelical traditions, uh, and, you know, and in non-Christian traditions. And so one of the things that I've been watching is, okay, so how, how, how does, say, for example, like how do the Southern Baptists respond to allegations of sexual abuse uh, or misconduct, um, and how is, how is that handled? And how do people in power, how do they really respond when something comes to light? And I think that that is, has been instructive to know how, what is sort of gets behind then the, the, the dismissal, for example, of mm-hmm. President Trump's, um, uh, the allegations against him when it comes to hmm. sexual. Great point. Yeah. And so, uh, the, you know, if you're not able to listen to women and children's voices in your own community, you know, it may, how can you listen 
to what that means in a political context, right? This is a great point. So I think uh, it's things like that. It's not. It's looking at the. It's looking at the political questions from a different angle and saying what else is going yes. on in this community that might um, help me look at what's happening politically in a different way and answer some of those questions in a different way. That's a really, really interesting place to draw a line from uh, maybe over here from C back to B. Um, right. I, so to this, to this point, you have been just in a really wonderful way, like dog on a bone reporting on sexual abuse in evangelical and Pentecostal churches. I've read a lot of your work around this and I very much respect how um, much you've come into these systems to report and challenge. And so I, um, I would love for it to hear more from you on this. How did this, how did this issue come to light? How did it rise to the top? And then how did it find its way to you? And then I'm curious what your views are on how is sexual abuse inside the church being handled? Um, perhaps maybe by individual churches or maybe at large, denominational, like governing bodies? Um, how, what does that look like to you as a reporter? And do you think this is dealing a fatal blow to institutions that are already perceived as losing favor in our culture? Um, I, I would like to hear what you have learned from your investigations and from your sure. reporting and sort of your high level. This is kind of what I've seen. Mm-hmm. Well, Last summer, uh, when the Catholic sex abuse scandals um, and investigations sort of exploded again, I think that that, uh, I mean, that was shocking for so many people and enforced in the Catholic Church a new reckoning uh, with what many had assumed were quote unquote old issues. Yes. And it's a reminder of how long um, it takes to really face sexual abuse in a church context, probably really any context, mm. and to really change um, a community. And so when that happened, then I think because that, you know, that was is a different environment than 20 years ago when that right. scandal first broke. And we were just on the heels of the Me Too movement um, happening, and people were looking with new eyes at abuse. And I think then in evangelical communities, that same question was coming up. And one of them, the main things that happened um, was the Houston Chronicle, San Antonio Express yeah. News right. series on abuse in Southern Baptist churches. They said, look, what are the public records in our criminal yeah. justice system of Southern Baptist leaders who have yeah. been arrested, convicted, charged with a range of sexual abuse and misconduct, right? Mm-hmm. And so then that forced people to say, to, to be able to, to have to stare at it, you know, yeah. there were hundreds of mug shots, you know? Yeah, so, totally. So that was the spark, I think, really for so much of uh, evangelical reckonings on sexual abuse. But, and, and the Southern Baptist Convention had, you know, had said that they were going to take this on and, you know, 
form committees and really look at the at the issue. And so it was interesting for me because as that was going on, I was over in Rome at the Vatican listening to cardinals, um, you know, meet with Pope Francis about what their next steps were going to be on this wow. very long road and how they were going to hold or not hold bishops and yeah. bishops accountable, right? They'd had a they'd had a plan for priests, but there was a lot of, I mean, a lot of the church leaders who were there from especially countries, like not like the United States, um, where the, the abuse crisis had really broken open. I mean, other places where even sex isn't talked about openly, right. they weren't even on the same page at the beginning about mm-hmm. the problem, much less the solution to it. So to watch this, I was very aware at just how this was the beginning for evangelical mm. communities, being able to see uh, how long um, the struggle has been in Catholic churches. Mm-hmm. And so for, um, one of the, the the biggest investigation that I did recently was about, or is about, a the, the um, allegation of child sexual abuse um, at the village church in right. Dallas. And you ask, how did, how did that all start? You know, how did this story start? And time and again, you know, we see it starting with, I think, very courageous uh, women and children who decide to speak and decide to put their stories um, and their lives forward. What's your, what's your sense of, and again, I do appreciate your, uh, your counsel that in so many of these stories, it's, it's a long road Mm -hmm. and it's usually in hindsight that these things become a little bit more clear, a little bit more defined, um, where some, somewhere near the more beginning of the story, it's muddier, but from where you are right now, um, all the way, you know, all your reporting up to with the most recent, what's your sense of how churches or large denominations, both either or, um, are handling, how are they handling the allegations? How are they handling abuse within their ranks? Um, and do you see, do you suspect that we will see positive change for less victim shaming and blaming, um, and more justice? Well, this may not make people very happy. (laughs) I want to hear your real sense of it. But I, right. I mean, when I am reporting and when I am talking to victims and survivors of sexual assault, and I hear their stories of how their evangelical Pentecostal churches have responded to them, uh, I have a lot more leads on mm. stories that need to come public and people who need to be held accountable and systems that are, um, whether they are willful about this or not, are set up to protect themselves. The issue is what are the systems in place? How are they set up? And what are the leaders doing or not doing that whether they want to or not are hurting people. And I, the Southern Baptist Convention, for example, I think the leadership was very upfront quickly after the the first investigations were coming forward earlier this year and said, you know, we're going to tackle this issue head on. And 
when I was in Birmingham at the Southern Baptist Convention, you know, yes, mm-hmm. they, this was just a bit over, this was in early June. Right. Um, you know, there, there were voting on new processes and a new committee and things like that. But it reminded me very much of what I have seen in the Catholic Church um, mm-hmm. and how actions may seem like the first step for um, may seem and, and be championed as progress, but the road is very long and yes. it did not address. I mean, there were there were survivors who are outside um, who yeah. had not been invited and in in the way that they wanted to be. And frankly, uh, it was it was very notable to me. I mean, just in my investigation about the village church uh, when. And the pastor there is Matt Chandler, and the you know the church. Um, well, he he did not talk to me for my investigation, and he did not speak with the the victim's family, the alleged victim's family, um, in uh, for almost eighteen months. Mm. Right? I mean, they came forward almost a year and a half ago to the church, and to this day, they have not spoken with Matt Chandler about it. Mm-hmm. And it was, so it was notable to me that somehow then within 20 hours of this big investigation breaking and then forward, uh, Matt Chandler was on the stage at an event at the Southern Baptist convention. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, you know, sponsored by a, a different Baptist group, but it was still there. And it was, um, you know, he, he was given a platform to, say what he wanted to say about what had happened. And you can listen to what he said for yourself or your readers or your listeners can certainly do that. But my investigation and our reporting has stood up through that. And I have yet to hear a Southern Baptist leader uh, raise questions about what has happened at the village. Mm-hmm. And even just raise a question. I mean, no one, no one will comment about it. I mean, it's the interesting, it's the most high profile. I think it's perhaps you know the most high profile case of current child sexual abuse. I mean, this is not something that happened twenty or thirty years ago. Mm-hmm. This is a a young woman who just turned eighteen, and this happened to her at a church camp when she was eleven years old. What I'm watching for is. What happens with that? I mean, what is the response? I mean, there's it's, first you cover the facts of an investigation, right? And you mm-hmm. handle what happened. And then you handle what is the response to all of this. And um, that is very much still part of the story. Mm. So this is for you. You're going to be in this for the long haul, obviously. Um, it's, mm-hmm. a, it's, a, it's a long road. It's a long story. Um, and as noted by history, change is slow. And um, accountability is slow, and systems are designed to protect themselves. Um, institutions like churches definitely are. And so we're just watching with such interest and grateful for people like you who are going back to the very beginning of our conversation, going for truth, like just what's true, what's true. And then what can we learn from that truth and how do we grow forward? I, I mean, obviously in your work, you end up covering some of the hardest, (laughs) most charged, um, opinionated, 
topics and issues on the planet. You really do. Like where so many of us, to your point that you just said, just go mute. We go silent. Um, we don't know what to say. We don't know because our alignments tell us what we can and cannot say to, to maintain our own belonging um, in that particular subculture where you just charge in um, as journalists do and as you should, and we're grateful for it. So for you, when you have been in these very challenging intersections and, um, and, and conversations with people who have very different ideas on governing and justice and what it all looks like, when do you know personally, like just as Elizabeth, that you have done a good job? Like, when do you find the satisfaction inside of these, this really hard work where you said this earlier, not everybody likes the questions you're asking them, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, And so when do you feel like as hard as that was, or as much tension as that created in my life, that was a job well done. And then even more specifically, thus far, and you've got a long career ahead of you, but thus far, what has been the professional accomplishment you've been the most proud of? Well, I think it's different for every story when I know, uh, because I, you know, journalists, we're some, we can be harsh on ourselves. You know, I, 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 every story matters so much to me. And it's very important to me that each story, um, stands. And so it's, um, the moment at which I know, I think is different for every story, mm. but often my favorite moments are when I hear from, um, let me just, let me just say, this really depends on the kind of story that I'm writing. You know, again, if I'm sense. interviewing an elected official about their sure. policies and holding them accountable for um, any number of, any number of those policies and sure. what they said publicly versus what they've done privately. I mean, um, being able to get them on their record in, in those important ways, I mean, that's an accomplishment in and of itself. But often the stories that I find the most personal satisfaction in are the ones that are really about people that you've never heard of. Mm. You probably would never have heard of them. Sure. Uh, if I hadn't sat down with them and interviewed them and if they hadn't opened their lives to me. I mean, I think that's right. such the step of bravery for them to feel heard in our pages and for mm. them, not just our pages, but for them to be able to tell a story and um, that otherwise wouldn't have been heard. I mean, their voice may have gone silent um, mm. if it were not for this story. Um, I know I'm thinking right now of an investigation I did earlier this year about uh, Catholic priests who are gay. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I spent months talking with um, dozens of priests behind, you know, behind the scenes, you know, people mm. who were, were terrified uh, that their their sexuality would become public. But when I hear from them afterwards, you know, thank you for mm. giving me a voice and for telling this very important story that affects so many people that has been either ignored or not known. Mm. That's what really matters to me. I love that. Um, and of course, making sure, you know, always striving for you. No, we want no corrections in your story. Yes. <laughs> to be factually accurate and um, to stand up against really hard scrutiny. So yeah. a lot of that satisfaction is coming before um, something is published because you you have to make sure that um, that you've got it. I, I love that because there is just a human tendency 
um, to inject your own bias into anything. It just is. We just, we want to either shift the facts just a hair toward our position or only include the sources that support our personal narrative. I mean, I know this all the time because I'm also a writer and a storyteller and I have a very clear perspective and worldview. And so there is that temptation on the front end to skew it, but it's the back end that you don't want to have to defend when you've done a poor job of it. When you go, yeah, you're right. I, I reported half of that or um, I skewed the facts or I omitted facts. So I understand exactly what you're saying. And so when you have written something that stands up and, and even your critics can push really hard on it, but it remains and it holds, Mm -hmm. that's a proud moment. That's when you know you have. And that happens over time. That's exactly true. Sometimes you don't, sometimes you don't know that right away because, uh, or or the community, you know, people might not know that right away. Um, because it's also, you know, well, yeah, it's fine. Yeah. Hey guys, Jen breaking into the show for a minute to tell you about one of our sponsors and their service that our family has absolutely come to rely on. It's care.com. So care.com is this easy and reliable way to find care for everyone in the family, literally when and wherever and however you need it. Care.com is the world's largest digital marketplace for care. We um, use care.com, by the way, for about five years when our kids were little and we needed a part-time nanny and we had a 100% good experience. Every single one that care sent us was fabulous and wonderful and now still a part of the fabric of our family. We use care for nannies, but whatever you need, housekeepers, they've got it, babysitters, senior care, you guys, dog walkers, like whatever, that's what I'm saying. Full-time, part-time, anytime you need it, they have it. So Care.com is giving our For the Love listeners a great deal. Uh, Their basic membership is free. But if you go to care.com slash for the love, you can save 30% on their premium membership, which gives you really wonderful tools. I mean, background checks and reference checks, qualifications, certifications, absolutely worth it. So you can go to care.com slash for the love. There you go. 30% off premium. Okay, back to our show. Elizabeth, I've asked my other guests in this series um, on truth this question. And so as a truth seeker yourself, obviously, um, what is the best advice that you could give someone who is trying right now, as we all are, you know, we're coming up into another, we are in it, this big time like campaign season, which is endless. It's way too long. This is my personal opinion. (laughs) As we're trying to sift through this incredible plethora of news and information and opinion that is constantly churned out right now through social media and the internet and TV and print and everywhere. Like, how do we get to the truth? What, why is it important that we do this, that we do this work, that we funnel down hard, that we ask hard questions, um, as opposed to just accepting on its face a version of the truth that feels most comfortable to us, which is an easier reach, a preferred reach, to be honest with you. Um, But how would you guide us to be competent 
intelligent, judicious truth seekers over the course of this next year and a half. I'm really glad that you're uh, even thinking about that um, because the question of uh, what is real and what is not um, is only going to become more and more important because of technology, I mean, in our elections, because of um, technology and changes and um, you know, governmental interference and um, just the absolute crazy. I mean, I like think about 2016 and then just kind of magnify that. And I think that's what we're headed into in terms of information. Um, so one, I would say, ask questions. You have to ask and ask questions that you might be uncomfortable with and educate yourself and read the news or listen to the news and um, listen to different kinds of news sources. That's good. Right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, read read the New York Times, um, read you know, read, read my colleagues at the, um, at the wall street journal or listen to NPR and follow, you know, follow stories more than just one story. Like if there's a topic, like don't just read one story about it, read a few. Hmm. And I know this takes time, you know, and it's harder to do than, um, clicking on whatever comes up on your Facebook feed, but I don't know how, um, in it, in this era when, there is so much misinformation and there will be more misinformation. I mean, we're, That's right. we're coming up to this age when we're going to have what they're calling, you know, deep fakes when, yep. when they're that. making, they're making, uh, technology has made it able to, you know, say, create the video looks like a certain politician talking, but they're able to manipulate it and actually put other words in this person's mouth. It does because look like it. I've watched those. Yes, yes. And that's what we're dealing with. So the truth is only going to become more important. And we need new ways, I think, as a culture to figure out how to do that. Um, So, and I would broaden the circle of kind of who you talk with about it. Uh, Because if you're only talking to your family or your immediate friends or... Now, if you're only talking to men or you're only talking to women or you're only talking to white people, you're going to hear different something, a different conversation than if it's a, a broader range. There are things you can do to make sure that it's kind of in, in your stream of consciousness, right? That you're, you're changing your media diet uh, uh, and you're aware of what your media diet is. I think that's the first step. Yes. Um, and to, to, before you can know what your media diet is going to be, you have to decide that you want a healthy media diet. That's great. And, and then you have to go for it. And, mm. um, you know, I'm happy to answer any questions for people if they want to tweet at me or um, mm. things like that. But this is a reason that in the United States, we have the freedom of the press and we have a press. You know, that we have the fourth estate so that you can have journalists and reporters that you can trust who can sort through this for you and, um, point towards truth. And then I would just remind everybody that, you know, the opinion section of a newspaper or an opinion mm-hmm. show on cable news, that is different from a good point or from the news pages of publication. And so the missions are very different. And also there's just never one story. I mean, we're covering mm-hmm. things in real time. And so you know, what we're writing is the first version of history. In many ways, and That's I think right. when I think about okay, well, what do I, 
if I want to know what happened, I don't know, 20 or 30 years ago, I can Google it and I can come up with the New York Times archive and I can read through that and I say, okay, this is what was going on um, and how it changed day by day or week by week and the conversations people were having. And that's what's happening now. I mean, that's what people are going to be looking to for what my colleagues and I are doing much, much farther down the road. Hmm. Um, and I, I, I understand that people don't trust um, the media. I get that. And I think there are some cases in which uh, people have to, uh, reporters are trying to, trying to earn that trust back. Hmm. Um, but we want a receptive audience, you know, it's this two way street here. Yes. That is our, thank you for saying all of that. Uh, I think this matters. It does. Yes. Take time, but it is more important maybe than ever that we learn to be media literate and savvy. Uh, you know, we're the first wave, uh, we're the first generation to have this level of 24 hour news and opinions, some real, some invented aimed at us everywhere all the time. There is no precedence for it. And so, we don't really have the luxury of sitting back um, and assuming that our media diet is healthy. We right. we have to be the generation that says we understand the risks embedded, not just the risks, but the repercussions. We've already seen it. Look at the 2016 election with the Russian interference. This is real. It's not imagined. And so thus, we have to be responsible and healthy adults who consume the media in adult ways. And so it's going to take more time, but it just has to, we don't really have a choice Um, or we are going to pass on a real mess uh, to our kids who are going to maybe never be able to unravel um, what has started kind of on our watch. And so I really appreciate um, not just your counsel, but your diligent work to bring true and honest reporting to your readers and to your community and to the culture. And it just, it matters more than ever. It's always mattered. Um, but it matters so much right now. And so our journalists are vital right now to protecting facts and truth in our culture when they're at severe risk, just vital. You're our front line. And so um, we thank you for your um, commitment and your diligence to dig and do your absolute best work with best practices. It matters. Hey everybody, Jen breaking in for just a second. I am, as you know, a huge advocate for counseling and feel like sometimes we just need a little guidance from a trusted source who can help us look at things objectively and find a way forward. So BetterHelp Counseling, it's an online resource that offers licensed professional counselors and they're specialized in issues like depression and stress, anxiety, relationships, family conflicts, grief, honestly, you name it so much more. Um, You can connect with a professional counselor in a safe, private, absolutely confidential online environment. Uh, You can even schedule secure video or phone sessions or chats or texts with your therapist. And so best of all, it is truly affordable, which hinders a lot of us from good counseling. And so for you guys, the listeners of the For the Love podcast, BetterHelp is giving you 10% off your first month with the discount code for the love. So if you're needing a little help getting to that good change in your life, go to betterhelp.com slash for the love. Okay. So one more time, 
betterhelp.com slash for the love using the code for the love. Okay, back to our show. I just want to wrap up real quick. These are three quick questions sort of off the top of your head that we're asking every guest in the truth series. Here's the first one. Um, Who's a truth teller that you admire? Um, And it could be anyone from, from history or even right now, modern context. I have to say my colleagues, Mm -hmm. I have great colleagues um, at the New York times and um, especially my, I'm on the national desk right now and my colleagues covering the country um, you know, they're your front line for hurricanes and natural disasters and political messes um, and understanding, you know, understanding what's going on in towns and um, farms and cities across America. And it's tough. Everyone's um, working really hard. And I just learned so much from them. That's a great answer. Um, for you personally, who do you think is one of the most insightful thinkers out there talking right now? Somebody really worth listening to? A non-traditional answer. Um, and I, I can't pick one person, but I have to say my sources. Mm. I mean, I listen to people people that I'm finding most insightful aren't necessarily people with big platforms uh, because I want to know again, what's happening in our culture. And that means listening to a huge range of people. But again, it's those, those sources who will come forward um, and open their lives. Uh, let me try to learn and listen to them. I actually love that answer. I think that actually has relevance to a lot of us. Um, we, we would do well to turn to our neighbor and become a good listener. Um, here's our last question. We ask every guest in every series this question from someone <clears throat> you have written about, Barbara Brown Taylor, <laughs> both of a favorite of mine for sure. Um, and so you know this question she poses and you can answer it however you want. What is saving your life right now? Hiking, being ah. outside, um, seeing birds. <laughs> Yes, and smelling trees <laughs> and and um, fresh air. Um, yeah, yes. the, I need a, I need that antidote to not just screen time, but the kind of yeah. the deep subject matter that I deal with all the time. No question about it. I I have said before plenty of times when I'm locked into my desk and my laptop in my head, um, I have just the most below brow practice, no matter what time of year it is of just, okay, I'm going to just take off my socks and shoes. I'm going to go out and just to my backyard and just put my feet in grass. That just, that's it. I, I don't have it. any other, that's it. That's the beginning and the end of the practice, but something about it literally is grounding. Yes. Um, like, okay, you know what? The grass will go on. Some things are eternal. This thing will pass. Um, <laughs> Okay, Elizabeth, um, thank you so much for your time today. Can you just tell my listeners how and where they can find you? Oh, yes, um, absolutely. So you can always email me, and that's my elizabeth.dias, D-I-A-S, at nytimes.com. And I'm on Twitter, uh, at Elizabeth Dias. So I would love to chat chat with all of your listeners there. Um, and uh, one question I actually have for them, if they're thinking about it, is I'd love to know a bit more about how this 
this political season, this presidency, this Me Too era has affected um, their marriages and their mm. core relationships. And I just wonder what that discussion has been like and if it's been challenging. I would really love, love to know more about that. So mm. um, email me, elizabeth.dias at nytimes.com. That's a great question. And I would love to hear what you find out um, and how those have affected our marriages and our interpersonal relationships. Great. As always, asking questions over there. Um, Okay. Thanks for your time today. I appreciate you so much. And just in me, you have a faithful reader. So whatever you put out there, I am paying attention to. So thanks for all your hard work. Thank you so much, Jen. Well, we packed that one in, you guys. Tons in there to chew on, to think over, um, to consider. I really learn a lot from journalists like Elizabeth um, who walk into an environment curious and open-handed to it and a good listener and a, a good student of people and truth. I, I, I was challenged by several things that she said, and I hope you were too. Um, if you haven't read any of her work, you're going to really want to, you'll see what I mean, um, about her. So over on the transcript page at jenhatmaker.com, we will link to all of Elizabeth's platforms, plus some of her most recent work. Um, as mentioned, obviously in this podcast, she's doing some very heavy lifting. Um, and so we'll link to those as well. So you can have a peek at, um, what she's paying attention to and what she's uncovering. She is a really trustworthy voice in our culture right now. So thanks for tuning in today. And this might be a good one to share with some of your folks who are just like the rest of us having to pay pretty close attention right now to what is in media and what's on our TV sets and in our social media feeds and how do we sift it out? This is, this is good instruction. So thanks for sharing this Um, episode with the people in your world on your social accounts. We see that you do that a lot and we're grateful. Uh, Happy to bring this series to you. More to come. So on behalf of um, Amanda, my assistant who does so much work on this podcast, she brings you everything you find on the podcast page at my website. And then my, my producer, Laura, and her entire team who works so tirelessly on these interviews and these guests and the whole gamut of this podcast. We are grateful that you're here and we're happy to serve you and thankful for your faithful listenership. Um, So anyway, you guys have a great one and we'll see you next week. That's it for today's show. Hope you enjoyed this chat. Be sure to subscribe to my mom's podcast and give it a thumbs up rating if you like it. From the whole Hatmaker family, I hope you have a great week and see you next time.